Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let's pray together today. Heavenly Father, we experience all kinds of opposition in life, Lord, from the world, from our own flesh, from spiritual warfare. And God, we are so tempted to meet that opposition head on in all that we can do and all that we can accomplish and all that we can, can provide. But Lord, at the end of the day, if it is not you that we are receiving, if it is not you that we are abiding in, and if it is not you that empowers us, then we, like the disciples in this situation, Lord, will fail. God, we need your presence. We need your power. We need your word to speak. God, we open our hands and confess that we have nothing to give. And in those open hands, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, that you would fill them with your truth. Lord, that you would fill them with this, this place, with your presence, with your power, that you would deliver us from this desire that we have to be self-reliant and deliver us into a deep dependence upon you, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, before I met my wife, um, her brother was, worked at a cabinet shop in Lompoc as a, as a carpenter. One day he showed up to the shop and he was the only one there. And he started to work on the, the project that he needed to complete by the end of that week. And he forgot to open up the windows. He, he forgot to, to turn on the fans. He, he forgot to provide the shop with the necessary ventilation. And as he worked, the air became gradually more and more saturated with carbon monoxide. 
And before he was ever aware of what was happening, it was, it was too late. He, he passed out on the floor in the shop alone. And praise God, just moments later, another co-worker showed up to the shop and, and found him laying on the floor unconscious and, and, and called 911 and, and grabbed him and, and pulled him outside into the fresh air and, and it saved his life. See, they call carbon monoxide the silent killer. There's no way for the human body to detect it many times until it is too late. My brother-in-law was fortunate. My brother-in-law survived, but many don't. And the sad truth is, is that there is a spiritual poison, a, a silent killer that destroys faith. Like carbon monoxide, it slips in almost completely undetected and goes unnoticed until it saturates our lives and it's too late. It's the poison of self-reliance. But before we get into that, I want us to look at some context in this passage so we can understand what's going on here. This passage uh, is connected to the previous episode of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember that, he brought Peter, James, and John up the mountain. He was transfigured before their eyes, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. And so this scene connected with the previous scene, it actually parallels something else that we saw previously in Mark chapter one. If you remember the baptism of Jesus, Jesus goes into the water. He comes out of the water. The heavens are open to him. The spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove and the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then immediately after the baptism, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Jesus is successful over the enemy's schemes. Well, in this scene, immediately after the voice declares that Jesus is the son of God and the disciples are to listen to him, they come down the mountain and they encounter Satan's schemes once more. This time... It's the disciples who are engaged in the fight. See, they had encountered the demonic before. They had seen Jesus cast out demons. They themselves had actually been given authority to cast out demons. When Jesus sent them on their missionary journeys, they came back rejoicing. Even the, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but that your name is written in heaven. And so they've encountered this before. They've seen this before. They've been victorious in these situations before. They had been successful, but this time they fail. This time they fail. And Jesus says that the crux of the issue, the reason for their failure is a lack of faith. And what we'll see is that they had stopped being dependent upon God and they were operating out of their own strength, self-reliance rather than God-dependence. And in seasons of opposition, in seasons of hardship that we experience, we can make the same mistake to depend on ourselves, to rely on ourselves, and it is absolutely toxic to our faith. See, self-reliance is a sneaky, sneaky foe. Because in society, it's seen as a virtue. 
In society, we praise self-reliance. We celebrate the self-made men and women who, who, who made their own way and blazed their own trails and picked themselves up by their own bootstraps. We celebrate these things. I heard a story recently of a man who was traveling alone on the Pacific Crest Trail. He brought no food, no change of clothes, no sleeping gear, just what he had on his back by himself in the middle of nowhere, just depending and surviving on found items and found food and the generosity of people that he encountered who just didn't want him to die. But instead of calling it kindness, instead of calling it uh, gifts or blessing, he called it trail magic. Trail magic. Apparently it's a thing. Because to rely on an impersonal force such as magic rather than personal relationships and interactions with people, you can kind of pat yourself on the back and justify yourself for your self-reliance because it's, it's this impersonal thing out there making all of these things happen. And so as soon as you call it generosity or as soon as you call it blessing or worst of all, charity, you have to acknowledge your dependence on others, and many see dependence on others as weakness. And so we often choose the life of self reliance and independence. And while this is classically American, it is absolutely toxic to the life of faith. And so our passage today shows us some of the harmful fruit of this silent killer of self-reliance. We have to think of this, this, the fruit of self-reliance, not only as what is produced by self-reliance, but we also need to see them as warning signs, as alarm bells, that if we recognize these things in our lives, that we may actually be in danger of something greater than the harmful fruit, but actually a, a, a harmful thing beneath the fruit that's produced Producing the fruit that we need to address. And so if we persist in self-reliance and experience failure or experience opposition, we can choose often to blame others. And so this leads to disputes. The disciples, when Jesus and Peter, James, and John come down the mountain, are found to be arguing with the scribes. The scribes regularly challenged Jesus. They challenged Jesus' authority to cast out demons, even when he was successful. He, was, he successfully cast out demons. And he said, ah, it's by the power of Satan that you cast out demons. And so even when Jesus is successful, they challenge his authority to do things. Now the disciples are unsuccessful. And so this gives the scribes the ammunition they need to try to undermine and to discredit Jesus' ministry. And so this is an embarrassing moment for the disciples. They are Jesus' representatives. They, in this day and age, a, a powerful person's messengers or representatives were, were believed to carry the authority of their master. And so when they are unable to deliver this boy, it is not only an embarrassment to the disciples, but it's potentially an embarrassment to the ministry of Jesus. They're misrepresenting Jesus. And so it's an embarrassing moment. And so the scribes challenge them. And so they start arguing. See, self-reliance oftentimes responds with defensiveness 
when we fail at something. This is what's happening here. They're they're defensive, and so they're arguing because of their failure. If you want to know where you are leaning on your own gifts, if you want to know where you might be uh, tempted to to live in self-reliance, then ask yourself, where are you tempted to be defensive? Where are you tempted to justify yourself? Where are you tempted to argue when somebody opposes a particular view or belief or practice that you have? Where do you get defensive? Where in, in your life are you not allowing grace to be enough? Who cares if somebody opposes you? If you're living by grace, if you're living by, by the justification that comes from God alone, the righteousness that comes from God alone, but when we're not resting in grace, when we're trusting in our own selves and somebody opposes us, we have to defend ourselves. We have to put the dukes up. We have to get ready for a fight. We have to operate out of defensiveness. And so when are you tempted to fight with those, to argue with those who disagree with you? See, self-reliance has to prove itself to be right. Because to be right is to be self-sufficient. To be right is to be good enough. And so asking questions, seeking understanding, actually betrays our deficiency. To ask a question just demonstrates that you don't know something. And so it's better for a lot of people when they just have this need to be right. It's better for them to just give answers instead of asking questions. We fight to prove ourselves. And so whether it's politics or race or how we should conduct ourselves during a pandemic, so many people are fighting to justify the decisions that they're making rather than seeking to understand the perspectives of others. And so in the church, it leads to brothers and sisters in Christ discrediting the faith and discrediting the discipleship of others because they arrived at a different conclusion. We can't possibly imagine a scenario where two different people in two different situations are following Jesus and yet arrive at a different decision because of conscience, because of sensitivity, because of all sorts of things. And so when someone makes a decision different than me, as I've been following Jesus to make a decision, and you've been following Jesus to make a decision, but because your decision is different than mine, the natural inclination is to completely write off someone's discipleship and say, well, you must not have been following Jesus. Your faith is weak. You are not depending upon him to make the decision. And so we jump to these arguments. We jump to these fights. We jump to these disputes and try to completely undermine someone's faith in God. And it can't be the way that it is. And this happens on both sides of many issues. And it's toxic to faith and it's toxic to the church. And so if you want to poison your faith, if you want to poison the faith of others, if you want to poison the church, then continue arguing, continue fighting, continue dividing. Force your own agenda. If you want to poison your life in Christ, force your own agenda, don't ask questions, don't listen to opposing voices, and at the very least, work to discredit the validity of any voice that disagrees with you and watch your faith disappear overnight. This is toxic to our faith. It makes our discipleship about being right 
rather than trusting in the God who by his grace has made us righteous. And it's toxic. It's poison. When we persist in self-reliance and experience failure, sometimes we are going to be tempted to blame others and, and dispute with them. But sometimes we are tempted to blame ourselves. And this leads to discouragement. So the next fruit, the toxic fruit of self-reliance. It's another way that people respond to failure. It's discouragement. We're crushed by it because it ultimately proves that we weren't actually able to solely rely on ourselves after all. And so we hang our heads in shame. We're frustrated because I should have been good enough. I should have been able to do this, but I wasn't. Think about the the sin and conviction that you often encounter when, when you are made aware of something in your life that ought not be there, right? The opposition from, from the world, the flesh, and the devil that leads to all sorts of trials and temptations, and you fight, and you fight, and you fight, and you fail. We fail. We all fail. There's times when we're, we're not walking in the victory of Christ, and when we do, we so often hang our heads in shame. We hang our heads in discouragement, which is a sign that we actually believed that we should have been capable of doing it. We should be sufficient. We should be able to conquer sin and Satan in our lives. We should be able to be self-reliant. And so we, we respond to the opposition. We respond to failure, not just in disputing, but in discouragement and depression. Gosh, if you know the spirit of God and have experienced the conviction of sin in your life and have ever been in a situation where sin has not just been easily repented of and done away and now it's gone forever and you've been in these cycles of besetting sin, it is so easy to look at that and go, I'm not doing it right. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. How could God possibly love me when I continue to fail? It's self-reliance. We actually believe that we should be able to do it and we can't apart from his grace. We can't apart from his spirit. And if we continue believing that we should uh, 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 be able to be, be good enough and, and, and we receive opposition and so we fight or we experience opposition and, and we respond in discouragement. If we don't turn from these things and rest in grace, the only other option is to do better next time. And do you see the cycle? Do you see how I respond in, by fighting or I respond in, in discouragement? because I should be self-reliant, so I must do better next time. We continue believing that we should be able to rely on ourselves. We're just not good enough yet. And so we continue striving and we continue resisting grace. But all that's going to happen is that your fights and divisions will grow more severe and your discouragement will turn to depression and it will destroy what little faith we have left. And so then we respond in more self-reliance and in trying harder and doing better. And then we're crushed by it again. And it's just this downward spiral into death. And so if you recognize these evidences 
of self-reliance in your life, then you are and I am and we are in danger of watching our faith be poisoned if we don't do something about it, if something doesn't happen. And so when our faith is weak and we've been beaten up by the world, then in creeps another fruit of the toxin, doubt. We may not choose to blame others for our failure, failure, We may not choose to blame ourselves for our failure, and so we blame God. And this leads to doubt. And so we see this in the father of the boy in the text. He brings his son to Jesus in faith. And then finding the disciples, he asks the disciples to deliver his son. Right? They are his representatives. They they carry with him his authority. And so when they were unable to help the boy, they they misrepresent Jesus and the man's faith is shaken. He comes to Jesus when Jesus is finally there and he says they weren't able to do it. If you are able to do anything, have mercy on us, have compassion on us and help us if, if you are able to do anything. If, if is 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 a very small word. If is a very small word, but it has massive implications. It, 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 it undermines our faith. It, it, it betrays our faith and represents this seed of doubt, this thing, this very tiny word. But it grows into something much larger. And so Jesus responds. He says, if I can, if everything is possible for the one who believes, See, the deliverance that this man needed was not contingent upon Jesus' ability. It was not conditional on Jesus' ability, but on the man's faith. And so Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, what this doesn't mean is that everyone who believes can do everything. That's not what this is saying. What Jesus is saying is, If I can, I can do all things. All things are possible for the one who believes. God can do anything he desires, anything he wills for the one who believes. The antithesis of that is not if you you don't believe, you can't do anything. If you do believe, you can do everything. But the antithesis of that is what we experienced when Jesus was in Nazareth a few chapters ago, where he was unable to perform any mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's not that Jesus' power was sapped out of him because someone doesn't believe. It's because where there is no faith, there is no deliverance. The righteous will always live by faith. God will always honor faith. And where there is no faith, there is no deliverance. And so this man is fighting doubt. He believed, he came to Jesus in faith, but because of failure, because of opposition, now he responds in doubt. And doubt is a common experience in the life of a believer. We we may doubt at various times and in various seasons and, and doubt various things. And sometimes because it's so common, Because it's so regular, because we're so familiar with it, we can kind of treat it like it's this thing that like, you know, 
it, 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 it's there, but it, it's, a, it's a good thing to work through your doubts. It's a good thing to, to doubt so that we can, we can understand better. I, I used to say that um, in order to fully believe something, we must first be skeptical, and I think that's actually harmful. I, th- I, think that, I think I've been spreading wrong things in my past. That, that, that was a particular story that I had. I was hyper-skeptical, and so when Jesus converted me, it resulted in a, 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 a hyper-conviction. I was, I was certain of it. But I, I don't think doubt is a good thing. Never in Scripture is doubt ever praised. Never, never does Jesus pat Thomas on the back and say, I'm so proud of you for questioning this, for doubting this. Doubt is, is never communicated as a good thing. In fact, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the tool of the enemy in the garden. You remember that scene in the garden around the, the, the tree and, and they're not supposed to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan comes to Eve and goes, did God really say not to eat the fruit of any tree in the garden? And he's, and he's, just, he's just planting these seeds of, of doubt so there may be things that we're not convinced of. There may be things that you're struggling to receive. There may be certain aspects of life in Christ that you're struggling to, to receive and apply and, and understand. But faith seeks understanding. Faith doesn't doubt. Faith seeks understanding, but it doesn't doubt because doubt undermines faith by focusing on what is not known instead of by focusing on what we do know. And so if the foundation of our relationship with God is built upon what we do not know, then our faith will fail. But if we build from what God has revealed, if we build on a foundation of who God is, what he's revealed, how we have encountered him and what we know to be true, then we have a foundation that we can actually build on. But so often what's so common, these days is that people are encouraged to dismantle their foundation through doubting what they've received and then and then and, and you have no you have no place to, to to hang the truths on that you are certain of you've completely undermined the foundation of the house and so faith does not cultivate doubt faith confesses doubt Faith doesn't harbor it and give it a nice little place to live and feed it every once in a while with other conspiracy theories and all this other stuff. No, faith doesn't cultivate doubt. Faith confesses doubt. It remembers who God is and what he has done. And so if you're experiencing uncertainty about something in scripture, uncertainty about who God is and and what he has done, then by all means, seek understanding, but confess your doubt. Confess your doubt and turn from doubt. This isn't calling anyone to blind faith. I'm not saying that anyone should just blindly believe. Scripture does not teach blind faith. I'm saying in the faith that you have, pursue understanding. Confess your doubts, pursue understanding, and invite God to help you in your unbelief. See, this self-reliance that results in all of these things, in disputes, in discouragements, in doubts, it's poison to our faith. 
And it may seem small. It may seem insignificant, but it snowballs and it grows into something that can kill our intimacy with Jesus. It can kill our fellowship with one another. It can kill our experience of God's presence and his power in the church and through prayer and in his word and in our fellowship and in ministry and evangelism. And it can kill our experience of God. And it leads to these disputes and discouragements and doubts. But the most notable sign that we're relying on ourselves rather than God, Jesus says, is prayerlessness. This is Jesus' diagnosis of the condition of the disciples' faith, their lack of faith, rather. See, the reason they were unsuccessful in the face of the enemy is seen in their prayerlessness. So the very essence of prayer stems from our need for God. Prayer comes from a dependence on God. Prayer is is, is born out of this, this gratitude for what we have received and the recognition that we are not sufficient even for the day apart from God's grace. And so this doesn't mean that the disciples were not praying Jesus isn't saying that, oh, all you needed to do was pray and cast out the demon. Notice Jesus doesn't pray here and he is successful. How can he cast a demon out that can only be cast out through prayer if he's not actually recorded in praying? It's because he's not saying, silly disciples, you should have prayed and then the demon would have left. No, this is a diagnosis of the condition of the disciples' lack of faith that they are not saturated in the dependency upon God that produces faith. He's saying your prayerlessness is a sign that you are not depending on God, that you are depending on your own strength, that you're being self-reliant. Possibly this is due to their previous ministry success. Because they had seen God cast out demons before. They had seen miracles and and people healed by the, 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 the power of God working in and through them. And so when they see it happening again, they go, I've seen this before. I've done that before. I know what to do. Everyone, move out of the way. I myself, I have done this before. I can do it again. And so we too, like the disciples, we can find ourselves in situations where we look back to the past. We look back to ministry success. We look back to the fruit of what God has done uh, previously. And we say, I've seen this before. I can do this again. And so we trust in whether it's formulas or, or just our, our own power, our own knowledge, our own intellect, our own fruitfulness in, in, previously. We can look at the church and say, God, you've done this before and then believe that we're entitled to experience it again without recognizing that everything that God has done in reality, Carpinteria has been completely a gift of his grace and because people depended on him for the very breath in their lungs. And so we we look back on the past, we can honor the past, but if we live in the past and we allow the past to justify our ability to do it on our own today, self-reliance, and we will fail. Self-reliance is the silent killer 
of our faith, like carbon monoxide. But these fruits are little warnings that the Spirit of God brings to our attention, like, like a carbon monoxide alarm that wakes you up and tells you to get out of the house. These fruits, these, these disputes and discouragements and doubt and prayerlessness are the little warning bells that should be going off in our minds right now that say, I've been depending on myself and get out of that house. Get out of that house of cards. It is going to collapse. Confess your doubts. Confess your disputes. Confess your discouragement. Confess your prayerlessness. But these are only fruits. So you can't go up to an apple tree and remove all the apples and say, it's no longer an apple tree. Right? Or like duct tape oranges onto it and say, I have made an orange tree. No, the only way, if you want an orange tree, is to rip out the apple tree and put something new there, to put an orange tree there. Because it's not the fruit that defines the tree. It goes all the way through everything. The tree is genetics and into the roots. And so just like these fruits of self-reliance, we can't just chop them off and expect to become something different. We can't just chop off the fruits and add different fruits. I chop off prayerlessness and I add prayer. I'm going to go to every prayer meeting and now I am, I am now a praying person. I am now a prayer warrior because I showed up on Wednesday nights, prayer and worship. That's my new identity. We can't just deal with the fruit. We can't just deal with the fruit of self-reliance. The problem of self-reliance goes all the way to the roots. And so if we want to see real transformation, then we have to get to the root of the problem. We have to get to the source. We have to get to the root of self-reliance, which is faithlessness. The root of self-reliance is faithlessness. The reason we continue to rely on ourselves is because we don't trust. I know some of you are saying, How dare you, Adam? How dare you tell me that I don't trust God? I confessed my faith in Jesus when I was this old on this day. Don't tell me that I don't trust. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying you don't have faith. But I'm saying that for all of us, the reason we are encountering self-reliance and the fruit that is born out of them is because we are not always actively, 100% of the time, depending on God for his grace. We're not trusting him. This is why self-reliance is such a great enemy of the faith. It completely undermines it. See, faith and trust in scripture, in the original language that the gospels were written in, is one word. In fact, there's one word in the Greek language, it's, it's pistis, and it's translated into English three different ways. It's translated believe, faith, and trust. Now, those three words have three incredibly different connotations in the English language. One word in Greek. So to believe, to have faith, to trust is for someone to entrust themselves to God. And so if we are entrusting ourselves to God in every moment of every day, in every situation, then we cannot possibly live a self-reliant life because we know that we are completely dependent upon God for everything. And so faith requires that we entrust ourselves to him. And so faithlessness is not only an intellectual rejection of Jesus, but it's an attempt to live apart from his presence and power. 
So to say that we are, are faithless is not saying that you don't believe. You have intellectually rejected Jesus. It's to say, even though you've intellectually accepted Jesus and, and acknowledge who he is and what he's done and received his grace, we're still tempted to live apart from his presence and his power to live by our own means and by our own strength. See, atheists will reject Jesus intellectually, but there are some who call themselves Christians that reject him by never actually entrusting themselves to him. And so apparently the disciples, though they believed his identity, they just confessed Jesus as the Christ a couple passages ago. They, they made the, the most clear declaration of Jesus' identity that anyone has the entire time throughout the gospel. They do believe, but they're not living in dependence on him. They were still trying to do things in their own strength. And so this is especially dangerous when we experience success in life or in ministry or business or relationships because the disciples believed they'd been able to cast them out in the past. And apparently the difference between what they were able to accomplish in the past and this moment right here is a lack of faith. They are a part of what Jesus calls the faithless generation. The faithlessness and the prayerlessness, it comes from the same source. It's a lack of faith. And so they're actually, this, this scene shows that the disciples are actually regressing in their faith. There are aspects of their life where they are, they are, are growing in their awareness of who Jesus is. And there are aspects of their life where they are regressing in their willingness to trust in him for everything. See, when we build for ourselves a spiritual resume based on what we've done or what we've accomplished, or how God has worked in our lives in the past, and why we build ourselves a, a, a resume declaring why we're worthy of our place in the kingdom, or in the church, or, or in the world, we no longer are seeking God in dependence, but we're seeking him from entitlement. We believe so often that, that we're entitled to see God move in particular ways, to answer particular prayers. We treat God as though he were in our debt, we say, look how good I've been. God, look how obedient I've been. Look at how much I've done or, or what I've learned or how I can teach or, or, or how I've served in this capacity and, and how I've fed that person and how I cared for this person. I deserve to see the, you work in this way. I deserve this opportunity. I deserve this relationship. I deserve this grade. I deserve this promotion. I deserve this raise. I deserve this leadership position within the church. I deserve this title. God, look at all that I've done. I've been so good. I deserve this sin. I deserve for you to turn your eye away from me and let me enjoy the pleasures of the flesh just for a moment because I've been so stressed doing your work, God. I deserve these things. And we seek God from entitlement rather than dependence on him. It's no longer a life that's fueled by grace through faith. It may have begun that way, but we end up like the Galatian church of whom Paul says in Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit, you are now being perfected in the flesh. See, faith isn't just how we enter the door of the kingdom. Faith is how we live in the kingdom. It's not just entry into the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Scripture says the righteous shall live by faith. And so a Christian life is a life of trust and dependence upon God. Complete trust and dependence on God. So then what's the cure? 
right? We've talked about all of these fruits of self-reliance, these warning bells that are, that are, that are alarms to, to trigger our awareness of something toxic going on in our lives. We've talked about how the root of those, those, those toxic fruits are faithlessness. And so what's the cure? What must we do to kill self-reliance and fuel dependence on God? Well, that's the rub, isn't it? Because anything you could do would just fuel greater self-reliance. If you could actually do something to make yourself less faithless and more faithful, then I would just be calling you to a greater self-reliance. You can do it, church. You can have faith. You can muster it up and put your faith in Jesus and you can defeat the the, the toxin of self-reliance, but there is nothing we can do. Anything that we would do would just fuel that belief that we can be good enough on our own apart from God. The reason that some of us are unsatisfied with Jesus or the reason that some of us are discouraged in our discipleship is not actually because you're doing anything wrong necessarily you might be doing everything right. But maybe it's from a place of achieving and not from a place of trusting. Maybe you're determined to make your own way in, even in your, in your relationship with Jesus. And it's impossible. It's futile. It can't happen. It's not what you're doing that's the problem. It's that you're trying to achieve something that you can only receive. The reason some of you are angry with God is because deep down we believe that God owes us something. We believe that, that God is in our debt, that, God, that we deserve God to move or work in a particular way, that, that God owes you something for your righteousness because of your past ministry successes or your past spiritual fruit or whatever it may be. This is why so many people today are tempted down the path of deconstructionism, right? This whole concept of doubting your faith and doubting the scriptures and doubting the truth of God and doubting the church and doubting church tradition and doubting history and just, just doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt. Seeking to build our understanding of God on doubts instead of on who he is and what he's done. And we're just dismantling the foundation of our faith and then walking away and say, God doesn't work. God doesn't work for me. The church doesn't work for me. Well, you just pulled the rug out from underneath your own feet. What do you expect? You're your own worst enemy. Trying to, trying to, to, to build eternal, timeless, beautiful, uh, uh, infinite truths about God on this paper-thin foundation that you've that you've you've completely set yourself up for failure. This is why some people abandon prayer. They don't see the point. Or maybe they haven't consciously abandoned it, but they just, they just don't care. It's just, they don't see the point for prayer because we believe that we should be able to do it on our own. If I believe that I can do it on my own, then why would I talk to you? Why would I ask you for help? And though we don't consciously say that, we're not consciously having that conversation with God, but it's the same truth works its way backwards. I don't talk to you. I don't ask you for help. Why? 
because I should be able to do it on my own. I should be able to do it myself. So this causes us to resist God. It causes us to live in that cycle of doing and defeat. But the good news is this. What's the cure for, the, 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 for toxic self-reliance? What's the cure for faithlessness? The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not about doing anything. It's about receiving. It's about receiving what Jesus has done. And so the cure for self-reliance is not about doing anything. We have to be delivered from it. Church, you've got to be delivered from it. If you're here and you don't know Jesus and you're recognizing this desire to live by your own strength and it's not working and people tell you that Jesus can help you and so you're here and you want to hear the gospel, what is the good news of Jesus that can free me from this self-reliance and, 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 and discouragements and doubts and all of these things? It's this, you have to be delivered. Christian, those of you who have been delivered from the penalty of sin, when it comes to the power of sin that still is involved in our lives and we need to be sanctified and we want to get it out of our lives, we need to be delivered. We need to be saved from it. We need to be, to be re- continually receiving the deliverance of Jesus. And so the deliverance of self the deliverance from self-reliance is this. We've seen it in the Father in this passage. The father with the boy, he comes and he recognizes that he can't do anything to, to, to save his boy. And so he throws himself at the mercy of Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a prayer. He's coming to Jesus, asking him this. I have faith. It's there somewhere, but help me where I don't believe. And so Jesus doesn't turn his back on someone with even small faith. He said, as small as a mustard seed. Faith as small as a mustard seed. That's all that matters. Tiny, minuscule, insignificant faith. But if you come to Jesus in that faith, he doesn't turn you away. He helps your unbelief. He brings deliverance. And so he delivers the father and delivers the boy from his demonic oppression. Self-reliance is only cured by God-dependence by our trust in him. And so the only way to be delivered from this poison, this toxin of self-reliance that will kill our faith and kill our church is to put what faith we have in Jesus, recognizing our deficiency and coming to him in prayer. And so this boy's deliverance is a picture of the deliverance that we need. See, the boy, uh, uh, the, the demon was cast out of him. The boy fell on the ground like a corpse, and most people thought he was dead. And so Jesus comes up to the boy that people think is dead, and he takes him by the hand, and he lifts him up, and he raises him up. And see, just a little while after this story, Jesus himself would be dead. He'd be nailed to the cross, put in a tomb, left for dead. But God would raise him from the dead. And scripture says that if we put our faith in Jesus, that we are united to him both in his death and his resurrection, that we have died to sin, that sin no longer has claim on us. The poison of self-reliance no longer has influence over us, that we are dead to sin, dead to self-righteousness, dead to seeking our own glory, but we have been raised to new life, that we now live in Christ Jesus, that the resurrection power of Jesus lives in us. And so like the boy, we were as though dead, but we have been raised to life. 
That is the deliverance that we need, church. You guys tracking with me on this? Someone does. So this is the deliverance that we need. We need Jesus. And so we receive the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We receive his deliverance. We receive his presence and his power, not by anything that we've done, but by what he has done for us. See, the thing that we need most in life is given to us by grace. It's not, it's not something that we achieve for ourselves. It's given to us by grace. We trust him and we receive. And then the Christian life is a life of response. In the same way that faithlessness is this root of self-reliance that produces fruit in our lives, so also receiving the grace of God, getting, letting our roots go deep down into the grace and mercy of God produces fruit in our lives. And so the, the Christian life is a life of response. We respond to this truth in love. We respond to this truth in gratitude. We respond to this truth in greater dependence and in worship and in prayer and, and studying the scriptures because in them we encounter God's presence. In them we encounter God's word to us. And so we trust in him and we receive and we respond. And all of these things are a response to what we have received from God. So Today, we are going to respond. And I'm going to call you to respond in a few ways. One, I want you to respond in repentance, that we would turn from our self-reliance and we would turn toward and and rest in God's presence. That we would respond in faith, what little faith we might have to come to God and say, God, I believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. Only you can can give me greater assurance. Only you can give me greater faith. Only you can give me greater boldness, greater courage. Only you can make me more resilient to the enemy's schemes. Only you can make me more resilient to the way the world would want to undermine the foundation of my faith. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I'm desperate to believe more. I believe, but help me to trust you more. I've trusted you in this area, but not in this area. I turn from my distrust. I believe. Help my unbelief. So we're going to respond in faith and we're going to respond in gratitude and worship, celebrating the gift that God has given us, his presence and his power by the work of Jesus Christ, by the grace of Jesus Christ, even when we don't see it. God, I believe that you're here. Help my unbelief to see that you're here. I believe that you're with me. Help my unbelief to experience your presence and power to a greater degree. The world wants you to doubt. Satan wants you to doubt. You don't experience him. Is he really with you? Yes, he is. If you've believed in Jesus, then he is with you. He has united himself to you. He abides in you and you abide in him. And so believe, don't cultivate doubt. Confess your doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. And we're gonna respond in prayer because we are dependent upon God for all things, for the very breath in our lungs. And so we're going to use our breath to breathe out prayer. This is why Charles Spurgeon says that prayer is the breath of faith. We receive. Receive Jesus and we breathe out dependence upon God. We receive the truth of Christ and we breathe out in prayer. 
Church, I want to call you to pray, not so that you can achieve something for yourself, but I want to call you to pray because only God can achieve what we truly need on our behalf. We are completely dependent upon him. I love seeing what God is doing in this church. I love hearing stories about what God is doing in your life. God is doing beautiful things because he wants to. But I want us to ask him so that we can receive what we win in prayer through greater glory and celebration together. This is why we have Wednesday night prayer and worship. Every Wednesday night, we come to this place and, 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 and we pray because we know if God's going to do anything in this world, it's going to come through prayer. And then he hears our prayers and then he answers our prayers. And so church, please come and pray. Come and pray, recognizing that we are completely dependent upon God for everything. We come to church here on Sundays so often wanting to receive something for ourselves. But what we receive in prayer actually enables us to receive more from God here on Sundays. Because we recognize that this beautiful gift that he's given us is a gift of his grace, of complete dependence upon him. So church, let's gather together. Let's pray Let's seek his face because I guarantee you, if we pray, I promise you, and I can make this promise because Jesus makes it himself, that if you pray, he will answer. If you pray, he will answer. What do you need? Don't pursue it out of self-reliance. Pursue it in prayer. Pursue it in dependence and desperation on him. But before we respond in any of these ways, in faith and repentance and prayer, we simply need to receive the deliverance that Jesus offers. Because he has set us free, not only from the opposition of the enemy, but he has set us free from this poison of self-reliance that is trying to kill our faith, trying to kill fellowship with one another and destroy the work that God is accomplishing here. May it not be so. He will stand against it. He will defeat it. He will deliver us. So let's receive his grace today. Let's pray together. Father, all of these things, Lord, we, we, we just come to you recognizing that our hands are empty, Lord. We don't have anything to offer. God, we don't have anything to offer you that you haven't given to us. And so it, even just with open hands, God, we are, we are empty vessels for you to pour into and for you to, to, to pour us out as you please. God, we confess the ways that we try to make our own way. Lord, we confess the ways that we seek you from entitlement and it just leads to discouragements and doubts and arguments and lack of prayer and this deconstructionism and, 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 and walking away from the community of faith and walking away from faith in Jesus altogether. Lord, we recognize how, how tempting that is for so many people. And so God, I pray that you would remind your people of the deliverance that you have brought to them by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you would show the world who, who, who believes that, that you have nothing to offer them, that you are, you have, you are the only thing worth seeking in life. You said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us, Lord. Help us to not pursue all of the other things and miss the kingdom. God, we're completely dependent upon you. And I'll just admit, that's not a comfortable place to be. 
but it's a beautiful place to be. It's a powerful place to be, Lord. Not because we are strong, but because when we are weak, then you are strong in us. So by your presence, by your love, by your grace, may we experience the power of your presence in this place today as we trust you in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.